0: You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 9th of February 2024 on Monocle Radio.
1: The Vladimir Putin interview as seen by Europe's most sceptical audience. Carnival gets underway in Rio and Italy shows its Eurovision hand. I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. It's Friday, so it's our weekly in-house daily. And the Monocle staffers, whose bribe requirement was lowest, are Julia Lassica, Fernando Augusto, Pacheco, Chiara Ramella and Nick Moniz. They'll discuss the day's stuff. And Chris Chermak will reflect on the night 40 years ago, when nearly half the population of the United States tuned in to watch a beat group from Liverpool make their American television debut. Debut. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller and we will start in Ukraine where it is safe to assume that two principal topics of conversation have dominated the last 24 hours. One, the dismissal of popular General Valery Zelushny as Commander in Chief of Ukraine's Armed Forces by President Volodymyr Zelensky and the dutiful stenography of the delusions of Russian President Vladimir Putin undertaken by former Fox News blowhard Tucker Carlson from which the chief takeaway adumbrated by Putin while Carlson and squinted like a golden retriever being shown a Rothko was that Poland started World War II. In
2: 1939, after Poland cooperated with Hitler, she <coughs> did collaborate with Hitler, you know?
1: Well, it's an interpretation. Uh, joining me with more is Monocle's researcher, Julia Lassica. um First of all, Julia, would many of your friends and relatives in Ukraine have been tuned into this?
3: Absolutely. It's a really big... Moment for very bad reasons, (laughs) but it was also a moment for humour, you know, you have to deal with a terrible situation and you have to be able to laugh at it in order to kind of process what is actually happening, in that an American journalist truly went to Russia and he did not ask a single difficult Uh, question.
1: Journalist is doing a lot of heavy lifting. Well, exactly.
3: Propagandist. (laughs) Or as Putin said himself, an entertainer because, of course, he embarrassed uh, Tucker Carson. He embarrassed him and said, you know, what is your talk show? It's just an entertainment thing. Uh,
1: Well, he wasn't wrong there, even if he was wrong about the causes of World War II. Um, As you alluded to, uh, there are a lot of Ukrainians did respond with the kind of uh, baleful humour which the world has come to admire in the last couple of years, but... uh, Did anything really leap out at you among the many Ukrainians queuing up to amuse themselves?
3: Yes, absolutely. My favourite post was from Volodymyr Dimchenko. He's a soldier and activist on the front line at the moment. And he tweeted and said, I'm glad Tucker went to talk to this idiot so that now everyone can see who we are dealing with. Putin is not a charismatic supervillain, but a stupid taxi driver who bores you with tales about how reptilians are taking power on our flat Earth. (laughs) Which I think sums it up beautifully.
1: Uh, It's not far from the truth, though, because uh, quite a lot of the first half hour or so of the interview was consumed by uh, Vladimir Putin outlining, as he saw it, the history of the Russian and Ukrainian nations from more or less the dawn of time to the present day. Um, But did he actually say, I mean, I may have nodded off at various points. Did he actually say anything during that that we hadn't heard a 100 times before?
3: No, absolutely not. You know, he's recycling the same points. He made these points on the eve of the invasion on the 23rd of February just as he was about to give the go signal for Russian troops to pour over the borders into Ukraine he's made these he wrote that infamous essay about Ukraine and Russia, the brotherly nations, the destiny for us to be one big happy family together, um, which he published back in September, September 2021. Mm. Um, And, you know, these are just variations of interviews that he's done over the years, including with Western journalists, where he repeats one and the same lie, which is that there's this historical destiny binding our two countries together and a very warped view of our histories.
1: I mean, does it strike you that this point of view has always been quite a common thing in Russia or whether this is something Putin has cooked up by himself? Because if if you think of this in the year of our Lord 2024. This is no more or less weird than meeting a British person insisting that, you know, the Republic of Ireland should still be part of the United Kingdom, or a French person who thinks they should still possess Algeria.
3: Absolutely. This is actually, unfortunately, very common amongst Russian thinkers, Russian intellectuals. If we look at the beginning of the 20th century with the... Oh, now I sound like and going back to the <laughs> dawn of time. but If, if you, if we you look... could
1: keep it to less than 30 minutes.
3: <laughs> if we... (laughs) If we look to the beginning of the 20th century, when many Russians were exiled because of the um, revolution, the communist revolution, many of them went to Western universities and there they started to preach the same idea of history. The Kievan Rus is the beginning, which is the ancient um, um, civilization that was in Ukraine, was based in Kiev, that that's the beginning of the Russian nation. And so that's the kernel, although Putin kind of goes off on his own tangents, that's the kernel of of, of lies, actually that Russians are clinging to. It's their way of showing that they're civilization, their society actually is older than a few hundred years. And Ukraine gets entangled in this because, of course, if that's where they began, then Ukraine, of course, must be theirs too.
1: Well, let's look at the other big talking point in Ukraine the last couple of days, which is the the long rumoured but now actual dismissal of uh, General Valery Zaluzhny from his position as Commander in Chief of Ukraine's Armed Forces. He is, as I understand it, a popular fellow in Ukraine. So uh, how have, to generalize wildly about a nation of 40 plus million people. How have Ukrainians been absorbing the news?
3: Actually, it's funny you say to generalize, you know, but actually, in a time of war, when everyone is faced with the same existential threat, mm. people tend to just generally have the same reaction, really. My family, friends of our family, you know, general figures in the public sphere, everyone was sort of saying that this felt again, like the 24th of February. It was this in, in feeling of total demoralisation that the challenges that you are faced with are almost impossible to deal with and in some ways it's worse because then there was that feeling and then immediately there was that strength and that unity but what Zeluzny really represented for Ukrainians he was the most dignified leader of Ukraine in the last few decades I mean there have been notable exceptions but he really shone his dignity, his appreciation for Ukrainian culture, for the Ukrainian spirit, this calmness that no one else could capture. And so him being removed was such a blow to Ukrainian unity in many ways. Of course, we're going, you know Ukrainians will try to recuperate, they will try to rally again, but that was a, real, a, real, a really difficult blow.
1: Uh, President Zelensky is presumably well aware of the regard that Ukrainians have for General Zeluzhny, so one assumes he has not taken this decision likely. Do do we know what they have actually fallen out about?
3: I think it's difficult to say, of course, because we don't know inside, but from everything, from all the reports and all the rumours, it seems like it's an ego move. Zeluzhny's approval ratings are stable, they're incredibly high, whereas Zelensky's are slipping because people can see the sort of mistakes that are being made. And also, it's a natural thing once you've been leading a country as a politician. Mm-hmm. Of course, you will become less popular over time, and there's nothing surprising about that. The gloss is kind of fading. So, in many ways, people think that Zel- Zel- Zelensky thought that by removing Z- Zeluzhny, he was sort of getting rid of a political opponent, unfortunately. I don't think that's what's going to happen.
1: And you don't think there's much prospect of his uh, Zeluzhny successor that is uh, igniting quite the same enthusiasm among Ukrainians?
3: I mean, there have been lots of things that have been said about him. For example, he has a reputation for not caring as much about soldiers' lives. He was educated in Moscow. He still has family, close family, his brother, his mother, his father, who all live in Russia, if not in Moscow itself. And so there's a, it's a lot harder to rally around a figure who came from... And although, of course, he has been at the forefront of all the, you know, of all the um, operations to liberate Ukraine, and I, I don't want to say don't doubt his integrity for one second but it's he's not as easy to rally around
1: julia lassica thank you for joining us you are listening to the daily on monocle radio You're listening to The Daily on Monocle Radio. That was a quick changeover. It's like a Formula One pit in here. Um, it is now time for some urbanism and design news. And for that, I am joined by Monocle's design editor, Nick Moniz. Um Nick, I'm not seeing in this running order an absolutely flagrant plug. For plug, for plug, for plug for some nonsense project in Perth. There I mean, I, is. I
4: can do that. Do we want to build towards that? I mean, I, you you started with Formula One, Daniel Ricciardo, yeah, uh, a great Formula One driver from Perth, Western Australia. Oh God, um, you've got it. Okay, we, we we've do, got the plug in. Okay, so, we're done so now. We, we can we move.
1: Do, okay, do we have a nonsense Perth story in our back pocket here? If we
4: need it, I. Don't, but I can. I uh, let's can, see. Yeah. How yeah okay. Okay. Let me. Uh, let me.
1: We're going to start with the downtowns of the United States, and this, this, this concern mm. that all these glittering glass and steel towers that had been built up until about four years ago were going to find themselves somewhat empty, as millions of people around the world thought, "I can just stay home." Mm.
4: Yes. No. So th- there's been a, a number of reports in recent months, like actually putting numbers to this realization that uh, people aren't maybe going back to the office in the way that they used to. Um, you know, and obviously, uh, I don't know if you've, you've commuted into London. Oh, well, I know for a fact you have. So I, I, don't mean, know. I mean, I'm here. <laughs> you
1: are. You are here. I'm here.
4: Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, uh, that commute is brutal. It's still, uh, you know, enormous levels of people going into their offices. Mondays and Fridays tend to be quieter. But in the, in the US, across the board, it is significantly lower with the number of people that are returning to their offices. So, there, there have been a, a couple of reports about the, the state and health of downtowns. So the first was from a real estate organisation that showed that 90% of institutional investors predict converting offices to residential and other uses in the next five years. So, the, the fact that they is basically no one using this office space? They've identified the 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 the, the need to, I guess, convert the use and hopefully uh, entice people back into those buildings.
1: Given the struggles of many cities to furnish affordable living for the people who are trying to live and work in them, that might not be altogether terrible news.
4: No, right? it's, it's, it is a good idea in theory. The, the difficulty is uh, the way that uh, we, we've essentially built these structures to be offices, mm-hmm. which means enormous floor plates, which in turn means actually there's very little uh, window frontage. So what you end up with is obviously in an office space, it's kind of all open plan. So it doesn't matter if you're, well, I mean, it does, but you know, y- you can be 20 or 30 metres back from the window, but because it's open plan, you get some natural light cut to turning this into a residential you've you've got a you, you can't you don't want your bathroom or shower in the middle of your living room which is also <laughs> your bedroom which is also your kitchen and believe me I've seen some flats when I moved to London where that was a thing and it's very unappealing <laughs> yeah. yeah very very unappealing so so there's there's a complexity in that if you break this up to turn it into residential you end up with a lot of windowless rooms which actually isn't even allowed so so there, there's a significant chunk of building stock that actually can't be converted mm-hmm. in this way which is which is where this sort of uh, n- evolution of the discussion is is heading so um Basically, there was another study by the architecture and engineering studio, Gensler, who analysed 1,000 buildings uh, across 123 cities in the US. And again, this is US is probably where this uh, problem is most prevalent uh, in terms of dying downtowns. But only 25% of the structures they found were able to be adapted to residential, which means what are we going to do with those other 75%? And, and really, the discussion comes to... Um, And and again, this has been flagged by several commentators and and analysts from McKinsey to PIMCO, which is uh, Allianz's development arm. But basically, we've got to find a way to make people want to commute. So what what what's a building going to offer you that's going to make you want to commute to it? Is it introducing things do we do we basically need to restructure our offices? Do do gyms become a given thing? I mean that certainly wouldn't entice me, but for some people <laughs> uh, that is I'm genuinely like a potato with toothpicks stuck in it. That's sort of my body <laughs> shape. Uh, maybe too uh, strong of a visualization there, but the, the the increasing and diversifying the offering in these office buildings seems to present itself as the best solution and 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 then that comes back to, you know, investing in everything from good lighting to good furniture to maybe mixing in a, a restaurant in there. It's it's really, you know, we talk so much about mixed-use developments, but it really, perhaps the solution is, is uh, you know, a mixed-use building where you're going to want to not be at home sitting in your pants at your kitchen table, uh, <coughs> tapping out your columns, which I know is exactly uh, how you operate. Um so I don't know if that's another strong visual that we want to leave, leave it is, on. it
1: is. Um, a strong visual, he said, grasping for the seamless link, is something being contemplated by the authorities at Florence Airport, Nick. I think we just about landed that. Um, I'm excited about this because... On my way back from Australia over Christmas, I did have to spend a few hours in Changi Airport in Singapore, which of course actually has a rooftop cactus garden, which I enjoy for two reasons. One is I enjoy the rooftop cactus garden in and of itself. It's nice. You get a nice view of the aeroplanes. You can breathe, well, when I say fresh air, you're at an airport, but you're outdoors. The other thing I really like is that there was clearly a meeting at the some point at which somebody said, Lads, you know what our airport needs, hear me out a rooftop cactus garden, and everyone round the table went, yeah, sure, sounds great. And I think I think
4: that that's the beauty of it. So so clearly this discussion has also happened in uh, in Florence where they are going to install a 19 acre vineyard on its roof. Amazing. Uh, which which is is sort of just uh obviously sensational in terms of like I don't know if it's going to make me want to stop through there if I'm uh, heading elsewhere but but the perhaps b- the
1: billboards are going to have excruciating plays on the phrase jet engines wine,
5: aren't yeah, they? Yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, I mean, it's yeah. so,
4: so So already you can see maybe the marketing thinking Mm -hmm. behind it, but uh, they're going to be growing it on their roof, cultivating it, harvesting it, and then also uh, producing and ageing it on site in specialised cellars. And I think what's... what's wonderful about this is it's not just an airport story. I mean, you, you, you referenced Changi there and how good it is to have this cactus garden. I mean, Perth, Western Australia, another outstanding international hub, uh, has an amazing plaza in front of the building where you can go outside and uh, smoke cigarettes. Um, so you, you, can see the, <laughs> you, you can see the different offerings uh, that, that cities are trying to entice people in with, but I think Florence is, is particularly strong. But yeah, again, what I like about this is is the model that it sets for I guess other industrial buildings, uh, you know, airports, uh, huge roof spaces. But what about warehouse districts? What are we what, what can we use and what can we develop their rooftops into? Uh, because I think I think so much of the built environment there's missed opportunities with wasted space on rooftops.
1: A building which doesn't have much of a rooftop, Nick, I'm I'm on fire. Is the Eiffel Tower in Paris, which. Is a large electricity pylon with a souvenir stall on top of it. Um, it is. It's not actually being broken up for scrap. It, it does sound like it is when you just see the headlines. But but bits of it are going to be put in Olympic medals.
4: They are, and I, I think this is this is a wonderful story. So yes, and to be clear, they've not just. Uh, taken chunks off the Eiffel Tower. Uh, that They were removed during various renovation works over the course of the 20th century. They've been stockpiled and put aside. Uh, and, and like any, I guess, sort of waste material, there's... And, and this is a trend across the design industry. It's like, well, what are we going to use it for? Uh, Eiffel Tower, that is something that is quite sentimental to the City of Paris, mm-hmm. I would say. So it, it's something where you're probably going to question the reuse of it. What they are doing is they are embedding... Are we,
1: are we starting to feel like winning medalists at the Sydney Olympic could have been given chunks of the opera house
4: i mean they could have oh, Knock off a few of those tiles; they're <laughs> lovely. Um, but but basically, they, they've they've found I think a very appropriate uh, purpose for them, and that is to uh, embed them uh, on the on the front of these Olympic medals for tw- for this year. Um, so the French jeweler Chamo worked with the uh, Olympic Committee uh, to inset these pieces. Uh, they're they're a jeweler by trade, so it's sort of the, the way that you would set a diamond. Uh, they've set them into the front of these medals, and I, I think they really really look beautiful. I don't know if uh, I feel like sometimes. Olympic medals can look particularly garish. I know the Commonwealth Games ones often. I'm like, what the hell are you thinking? But I think that this is a really, really smart, beautiful, elegant execution, and 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 the designs themselves. Uh, they have the, they do have the Eiffel Tower on it. They have. Uh, <laughs> I don't know why you're smirking at me. Are you thinking of a particularly ugly Olympic medal? That's what no, I'm hoping no, for. No, I'm, I'm <laughs> basically
1: just thinking I'm quite disappointed that instead of medals, France isn't going for like little accordions hung
4: with strings of onions. Andrew, <laughs> Andrew. Uh, I mean, actually, that would be quite good. Well, because they they do they haven't announced what the, the flower bouquet is going to look like go. next to it. So maybe that's, that's what they're going to get. Um, but yes, I think a, a beautiful, beautiful uh, idea and execution. Monocle's design
1: editor, Nick Manice, Thanks for joining us on The Daily. <music> That was an even faster changeover. Uh, You are listening to The Daily on Monocle Radio. And Carnival, it says here, begins today in Rio de Janeiro. And joining me with what I suspect is basically an extra instalment of his weekly global countdown smuggled in under another name is Monocle's senior correspondent, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Fernando, welcome. Welcome. And you're very right. That's kind Uh, of another instalment of the global countdown. Slightly different. Um, It says here also, Fernando, I have some prompts of things I'm supposed to argue about. argue, uh, well we might get to that that I'm supposed to ask you about they are nudity, top songs and biggest trends which one do you want to do first? Show start
6: of nudity? Because Let's I, start
1: with nudity, I think Amanda. that's <laughs> very important
6: uh, because I actually, you know, I I wrote a piece which should be out in the next days I believe, uh, I think when you look at Carnival, you look at the social mores of Brazil uh, so of course, coming out of the dictatorship we were very free at Carnival, mm-hmm. so people were literally Nude on the samba drum. So
1: it was the 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 junta has been overthrown.
6: Kit off, kit off. Right-o. But then there's been a few controversies, like actor. <laughs> I, I think the <laughs> like actor George LaFon. He was uh, you know in a very beautiful uh, show from Beja Flor. He was wearing just an orange pom on top of his genitals. And, and after, after that, he was completely naked. And some people were thinking, oh, that's a bit much. So then some restrictions... W- when people were thinking
1: it was a bit much, I'm t- I assume it wasn't the colour they were objecting to. Was it... Was it a th- Or was it... I don't know, Rio. Was it a thing with people going, okay, I mean, like a blue pom-pom, fine, but orange, <laughs> this is this is insanity. To be fair, I think the orange... Co- and
6: talking about orange, actually, I'm wearing a tangerine t-shirt. You are. In, 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 in
1: homage, presumably.
6: But then, of course, there's been a lot of discussions. And, 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 and Brazil was becoming a little bit more conservative in the Bolsonaro years as well. So it's it's quite interesting, Andrew, but I have a feeling that this kind of freedom element is coming back, perhaps a little bit different from the post-dictatorship. So basically, wear whatever you want. Uh, and, and especially women, because before they were very sexualized during mm-hmm. Carnival. But now I feel that, you know, they are in control. They wear whatever they want, and things are changing. So it's quite interesting looking... Through Carnival, uh, you know, looking at nudity as well. So, Kit back on to an extent,
1: I guess, (laughs) is is where we are. Very well Um, put. Fernando, I I have delayed this for as long as I decently could by asking you about nudity, but we do apparently have to get to grips with the music.
6: Yes, I chose three Carnival songs for you that I think would do very well this year. Mm -hmm. Uh, Of course, only at the end of Carnival you see if, if it really kind of connected with people, but I, you know, trust me, I think those three tracks, if you are in Brazil, You will be listening to that.
1: Okay. Do you want to? Int- I mean, how do you know when you've connected with the carnival crowd? Is is, is it when the sky is darkened by orange pom poms ecstatically flung in the air? Or that's <laughs> that's a, that's okay, a very fine.
6: that's a very good way of mm. of seeing if a carnival song works. The first one, I think, that's an easy one. Yvette Sangalo, she is the queen of carnival, and this year she's celebrating thirty years since she started in the music with her music career. And this time she asked for a younger singer, Lujimila, mm-hmm. who is also everywhere. The song is kind of funny, and 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 you know I've been looking for the meaning of the track, but I'll tell you later. This is Yvette Sangalo and Ludmilla with Macetando.
1: Am I writing, imagining, Fernando, that the other two tracks you've chosen for us are not going to sound hugely dissimilar? There are a few
6: differences, Andrew. <laughs> there are a few differences. But this word, macetar, I mean, it has two meanings. The first one... Two meanings? Okay. Yeah, the first one is, is a trick. When okay. you play a trick with someone. Okay. The other meaning is very sexual. So you can think whatever you want. Why not both? Exactly. Uh, very big hit uh, this year, Masetando. Okay, uh, the next one. He is an interesting character, Pedro Sampaio. Uh, he's a new kind of Brazilian artist. He sings funk. But, you know, he's, he's quite big. He's always in the charts. But I think he, with this song that we're going to play, basically he came out as bisexual, I believe, a year ago. Mm-hmm. So I think he, he's also more free, uh, uh, in <laughs> a way. And he even said after coming out as bisexual, apparently his fee increased as well. So that's the new well, world. he doubled his audience. Amazing. Mm. And... Again, a very sexy track here. Pedro Sampaio with Poc Poc.
7: Put
8: na parede que eu te deixo forte. Pede com maldade, toma
6: Poc e Poc. Put na parede que eu te deixo forte. Pede com maldade, toma Poc e Poc. Manda a parede. Poc e Poc. Manda parede. Poc e Poc e Poc e God, that's annoying. You know, but a man with a very, very eclectic taste. I have to say, <laughs> I've been listening to Poc Poc nonstop. The song is just two minutes, 13 seconds, I believe. Okay. Very sexy, easy to dance. Mm. I'm a big
4: fan. Is, is,
6: is, is there a meaning, even one meaning to this, never mind two? Well, if you look at the video, I mean, he's kissing a Brazilian actress, Deborah Seco, but he's mm-hmm. also kissing a man. And they're all in bed, you know. It, 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 it's about freedom. It's about freedom. <laughs> well, clearly. That's, clearly. The meaning. That's the meaning of the song.
1: Uh, uh, finally, uh, from <laughs> when, I, when I say finally, listeners, I'm warning you, there is more music coming up after even this. But
6: finally, of the carnival selections. This one is a respectful one, Andrew. And I think even you... Might, a, a respectful carnival. Be careful tune. what you say. So, every sample. So, you, you would leave your pom-pom on for this one. Yeah, okay, please, and more than a pom pom, perhaps. Uh, but every samba school they choose a theme for the year and and then they they play a song around this theme. So I chose the Mangueira Samba School, which is one of the most traditional. Mm -hmm. And this samba, which we're gonna listen, is a tribute to one of the most legendary Brazilian singers, Alcione. It's titled The Black Voice of Tomorrow. She was, she's 76 now, still Mm -hmm. alive, still dancing uh, during carnival it's a beautiful track and more traditional so if you like traditional samba this is your time shall we have a listen why not Andrew, come on uh,
1: we'll agree to differ on that but thank you for that roundup <laughs> of this year's carnival music Fernando and a big hello to our many many listeners in Rio who have taken time out from the revelries uh, to tune into the monocle daily but and slash but and. Uh, it is now just 88 days until this year's Eurovision Song Contest Final, which I think we can all agree is well worth staying alive for. However, those who cannot wait even that long are presently transfixed by the San Remo Festival, the event which decides which act will represent Italy, who won it as recently as 2021 despite the fact that their entry of that year Maniskin resembled nothing so much as maybe the fifth best Jane's Addiction Tribute Act in Trieste. Still Still with me is Fernando Augusto Pacheco, now wearing his Eurovision desk chief hat, which does have an orange pom-pom on it. And we're also joined by Monocle's senior San Remo analyst,
0: Chiara Ramella. I've worked up to that title. You have? You Last have. year it's, I was junior,
1: but yeah, I know, <laughs> I've graduated. It's the realisation of a dream. Yeah, um, finally. And before, and again, I'm just delaying the inevitable as long as I can, but before we get to the actual music, Chiara, could you briefly explain to the listener who may not have run across the Sanremo Festival, what it is they've been missing?
0: Well, in the context of Eurovision, I think it's very interesting because Eurovision fans will probably know that the format of Eurovision was inspired by Sanremo, which has been running for decades and decades in Italy. Is this another
1: one of those things that Italians claim
0: they invented? Along with the best food in the world, yes, <laughs> but we are right about that. Um, so it's a it's a really a marathon in the way that Eurovision is. It lasts Ooh, almost. The Greeks
1: invented that, didn't they? <laughs> <laughs> no, sorry, <carry> on.
0: <laughs> the bit, No, 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 that's not the way um, It lasts evening after evening, and it. It just really carries on until the early hours of the morning. You People stay up until 2 a.m. And the vast majority of people in Italy will generally not go out on a week like this week because they have to watch it religiously night after night. Because much as it is about music, it's really not just about music. It really is a moment of... Of of understanding Italian society and where it's at right now for the country, it is where a lot of the debates, discussions around what's going on in mm-hmm. the country happen. Sometimes in a really hammy and cliched way, um, sometimes in just a provocative way that causes scandal. Always overwrought and much amplified, of course. But it's astonishing, you know. The festival genuinely dominates all headlines in the country for the whole week you know you go to republica pontuit and maybe there will be some stuff about politics and international affairs but there's a huge section on saremo analyzing the most minute details and whatever went wrong <laughs> in, in night 1 night 2 night 3 Tonight, you'll be pleased to know, is the night of the duets, which is very exciting because people really get, get to, like taken out of the, you know, old back of wardrobes and dusted off. <laughs> <laughs> and they get paired up with the, um, with the contestants of this year. And it's a great one tonight. But the fa- great final's tomorrow. Okay, well, we don't know yet quite what... Fresh Hells,
1: the duets evening uh, has stored up for us. We don't know yet quite who is going to represent Italy but you do have three tracks pertaining to this year's Sanremo to introduce to us. Listeners, we did talk her down from 228. I've done my best.
0: Yeah, I I really did try to up the number of clips (laughs) but the producer would not let me. Um, So, I'm going to start with Mahmoud. Again, Eurovision fans will be very familiar with him. Uh, He's I think, one of the most interesting contemporary musicians in Italy. And interestingly, he has represented Italy at Eurovision a couple of times. So people will be like, why does Italy keep sending Mahmoud to Eurovision? That's because Sanremo is such an important festival in itself that it tends to crown the best song in the country that Mm -hmm. year. Nobody really cares about who goes to Eurovision. It's much more about the internal market. But this song by Mahmoud, who is of Italian-Egyptian descent, grew up in the suburbs of Milan, really great interpretation of lots of different influences it's called tuta gold it's a it's a hymn a homage to a gold tracksuit and what it means to grow up in the suburbs of milan as a gay man also you know experiencing genuine violence um but he makes it into this amazing bop which is irresistible And when you see it played even by the orchestra in the ariston theater they're all going like yeah let's do it and let's do it now let's listen to it
8: Se partirò a boda Ricordera ti ricorderai dei giorni intanto quella luna
1: fumando fino all'alba non cambierò però
3: non cambierò
1: I will throw this over
6: to our Eurovision desk chief Fernando Augusto Pescheko what do you make of this well one thing I have to agree with Kiara, he's an excellent musician, very innovative, and, and the visuals of the of the video clip for that song is amazing. I, I am a big fan, but the only problem I have with Mahmoud, I mean, I hope Kiara will be fine with me after. <laughs> he does, I don't know, he's quite standoffish from an outsider point of view. I did saw him in the airport, you know, one of the many years I covered Eurovision, but perhaps he's just a shy man. You know, we don't know. What do, what do you have to say? about this, I, character,
0: I genuinely think he's a lovely man. He's, he's quite sweet when you read interviews with him. And actually, we've had it in Monaco. We've had him in Monaco. Um, Gabriele de Lisanti was lucky enough to meet him in real life and speak to him, which I will forever be j- jealous of. And he actually speaks really candidly, really openly about his upbringing, his openness. I know, I, I'm a big fan. And plus, you know, the outfits, the outfits...
1: The gold tracksuit.
0: The gold tracksuit, but also, no, he pre- performed in this really kind of urban... Um vest with lots of pockets and these big white trousers and then the second night he had this almost like Greek god type of I don't know, black strewn black top strewn across his torso, it was it was phenomenal
6: He does have a very chic face as well I
0: have to yes. say Yes, and he, and he puts his high, tongue high. out during the, the performance as well How can you resist that?
1: High praise uh, from Fernando there um, The next clip you want to play as Chiara is whom?
0: Well, this is really a true icon of Italian music. Loredana Berte is now 73 years old and she has been in Italian consciousness and pop music for decades. She's an extraordinary woman, really charismatic, who became famous over the course of the years for her real kind of aggressive feminist um, songs that really stand for female empowerment, independence, etc. And maybe you'll be interesting to know that she was um, married to tennis uh, superstar Bjorn Borg at some point. I did not know that. Well, there you go. Um, and but then she's alone now, and she's very, very happy about that. And this song <laughs> that she is presenting at the festival is called "Pazza," which means crazy. And it's all about being happy to be by yourself. And it's co- and it says, "I'm I'm crazy about myself, and I'm happy to be by myself." Let's listen. No, no,
1: Fernando, very quickly
6: from you. Do, you, do you approve of this with your Eurovision desk chief hat on? Very much. I want Loredana for the win. She, as Chiara was saying, what an icon and we need more 73 year olds in Eurovision stage enough of those youngsters you know we want Loredana
0: and she has blue hair can you believe she's got long blue hair she's fabulous get her to Eurovision
1: so have I and nobody puts me on Eurovision (laughs) Um, Chiara just just finally the the one that I believe we're going to hear now is the bookmaker's favourite to actually win this thing and therefore may actually be representing Italy at the Eurovision Song Contest this year who are they?
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm a little bit disappointed because she's not my winner. Um, But this is um, La Noia uh, by Angelina Mango, who actually is kind of a bit of a nepo baby. Her mum was in Mattia Bazzar. Her dad is Mango. She was part of of a talent show. Of
1: of the famous (laughs) Mango. Of
0: of famous Italian pop history, which I'm not going to stand here and recount to you now. But, you know... The song is fine It's it's a bit cheeky It's obviously made for summer As she says in the song itself It's obviously a cumbia It sounds good But uh, why not Loradana Anyway, Angelina Mango, La Noia Let's listen La Noia
7: La Noia La Noia senza <speaking> morire In questi giorni <Spanish> usati Vivo senza soffrire Non c'è croce più grande Non ci resta Uh,
1: Fernando, as people who ever walk past your desk well know, you are something of a fan of the classic Italo pop summer banger. Um, Where do you rate this one? It's okay. I,
6: I don't think it's bad at all, but I mean, it's, it's no boys, 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 summertime oh, love, though, is it? God, no. <laughs>
5: what, is, what, honestly, exactly, what is? What is? Exactly.
6: <laughs> what is? But So, Loredana is my favourite. That's what I have to say. But yeah, Angelina is the favourite. But there might be surprises, right, Cara? Yeah, I, I
0: mean, think Loredana is now on the ninth in the bookies. So, okay. anything could happen. Let's went to Saturday.
1: Well, I, I mean, can we though? Can we though? Uh, Chiara Ramella and Fernando Augusto Pacheco, thank you both for joining us. Finally on tonight's show, the British musical invasion of the United States began 60 years ago tonight, when the Beatles visited New York City and played on the Ed Sullivan show for the very first time, with a whopping 73 million Americans tuning in. The anniversary is being celebrated at the Chrysler Museum in Norfolk, Virginia, which is hosting a special exhibition of Paul McCartney's own photographs from that first US tour. Monocle's Chris
5: Chomack reports. Ladies and gentlemen, the Beatles! <laughs> Those deafening screams you're hearing is for the first ever Beatles performance in the United States, 60 years ago today on The Ed Sullivan Show. A seminal moment of American history and in the lives of countless teenage girls who were watching that night, including one Virginia Scoseri.
8: And now our Beatles expert,
5: Miss Mom, who also just happens to be my own mother. Virginia Scoseri, a.k.a. Miss Mom, was sitting in front of her television screen that night in Massapequa, New York, just 13 years young. Do you remember the first time you saw the Ed Sullivan show? Oh, yes, of course. When the Beatles were on? Of
8: course. We were all just absolutely wild. It was just wild. I think you couldn't speak watching them. You just screamed and cried and, (laughs) yeah. That was all you could do.
5: (laughs) Denied by her own mother the chance to see the Beatles in person, despite the fact that they were due to perform only a few miles away in Queens, my mother fell in love with the Beatles over the Ed Sullivan show, screaming at the television set while at the same time trying to contain herself so she could actually hear the music.
8: Whenever you knew that the Beatles would be on Ed Sullivan, well, then there was nothing else you'd be doing except watching that show i don't think there were any other affairs going on nothing that was it that was your life (laughs) what a wonderful time that was to be alive
5: (laughs) in all some 73 million americans tuned into the ed sullivan show that night each in love with one of the four beatles in my mother's case that was paul mccartney at least until a later edition of The Ed Sullivan Show, at which point my mother heard this.
8: So there he is, sweet John, singing Twist and Shout. I shall never forget it. <laughs> when I fell in love with John Lennon. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sorry, Paul. Used to be Paul, but.
5: <laughs> now Sir Paul may have lost my mother's affections but he is the architect of an exhibition in the United States where the 60th anniversary of the Beatles tour is something to be celebrated this week. I'm a big fan of rock and roll music even though I was
2: uh, just born when <laughs> when the Beatles came to America. They f- were part of my musical consciousness from almost from the very beginning. Yeah. So that, that I thought wow we've got we want to be part part of something bigger here and celebrate that.
5: This is Eric Neal, director and president of the Chrysler Museum of Art in Norfolk, Virginia. The Chrysler Museum is hosting an exhibition of Paul McCartney's own photographs from that first tour of the United States. Launched at the National Portrait Gallery in London, the Chrysler Museum marks its first stop in the U.S. The exhibition's been quietly live since early December, which is when I visited, but its proper opening is happening this week.
2: We moved it to this time of this great celebration for when they really hit the stage in the United States with through television.
5: Eric says the Chrysler Museum has featured numerous photo exhibitions in the past, but rarely from amateurs. Then again, Paul McCartney, as it turns out, is no amateur.
2: When I was shown the sort of the precy, the synopsis of the show, I was struck immediately about really how good the photographs were. That is not just the nostalgia of the piece, but there was something, this is an artist at work and this is a, an avenue of expression for him uh, that maybe he didn't fully investigate in the course of his life, but there, you could see that he has this, this, this ability to capture people and moments, and he's interested in, in human
5: beings. What's also striking is that these photographs weren't meant to be published at the time. McCartney only discovered them again more recently. That means a lot of them actually catch the Beatles behind the scenes, partying with local musicians, relaxing by the pool
7: and backstage. <laughs> So the the candid moments you see Paul you see John with his glasses on again John did not want to be seen publicly with his glasses on he didn't like them and he didn't like having to wear glasses.
5: This is curator Lloyd DeWitt,
7: who walked me through the exhibition during my visit. The personality of the different band members, I mean, George is almost always kind of formal and reserved, and Ringo is very, can be, you know, very goofy. John is a bit of a knuckle-chewer, and you get a sense of that nervousness, too. And I mean, they're like brothers. They're, they're traveling together for months. That sort of uh, familiarity, something that kind of oozes out of all the photos.
5: And then there's the fact that this is the first time the Beatles are visiting the U.S., so a lot of the pictures from Sir Paul are portraits of ordinary American life, workers and advertising billboards, and of the photographers and fans following them.
7: But you see also shots of him connecting with a very specific photographer on the ground, and, and, that's, and the cops and the airplane technicians, one of whom is doing air guitar. And uh, that's what he catches his eye, you know, that's what catches his eye. And the masses of people...
5: Amid all the madness in New York, Lloyd brings me to Paul McCartney's favorite picture of a young woman with a curious look on her face.
7: As they're moving, heading towards Miami, uh, they take a shot out the window, again framing the people with the car windows. And there's this innocent young black girl who is caught in this beautiful light. chiaroscuro is what, you know, is how Paul ca- calls it, this black and white. And she doesn't know them. But she knows there's something interesting there, and but she is interesting to Paul. And so he captures her and frames her as the center of the photograph.
5: When the Beatles did eventually return to the UK, this photo exhibition shows that Paul McCartney was left with an indelible impression of the United States and its people. Just as they, the Beatles, had left an indelible impression on Americans, including, of course, my own mother, Regina Scoseri.
8: I also remember when they were leaving New York and they were on the Ed Sullivan before leaving and uh, then they left the stage and then I was in a wreck I was in tears because they were leaving New York and I remember going up to the room a little study where my parents were crying that the Beatles are leaving and my father didn't have a clue as to how to handle the situation he just looked at me astonished and and couldn't speak he was speechless my mother knew right oh that's okay honey they'll be back soon
5: For Monocle, I'm Chris Chermak. Thanks,
1: Chris, and Chris's mum. That is all for this edition of the Monocle Daily. Thanks to our panellists today, Julia Lassica, Nick Manise, Fernando Augusto, Bacheco and Chiara Romella. The show was produced by Carlotta Rebello and researched by Neoma Ekwe. Our sound engineer was Lily Austin with editing assistance by Steph Chungu. I'm Andrew Mullet here in London. The Daily is back at the same time on Monday. Thanks for listening.